Good morning again. If you're visiting, my name is Peter, and I serve on the team of elders that leads the church. Uh, Today is a really big day for our elders team. Uh, Thaddeus and Jess, can you all stand up, please? So it's a big day for our elder team because we just got a little upgrade in our legit status. One of our elders actually became old today. Praise the Lord. One of y'all has entered into your fifth decade of life. Jess Stevens turned 40 today. Stay standing. Jess, it's, it's perfectly appropriate that you turned 40 on Father's Day, brother. You, in the last several years, me leading this church and the false burdens that I've taken up upon myself, thinking that it was gospel burdens, You've refreshed me so much in showing me the heart of the Father and helping me to hear the whisper of the Holy Spirit. So I honor you, and happy birthday, and happy Father's Day. Let's all give him a hand. Thank you. We're in week eight of the gospel. is for everyone. It's a study in the book of Romans that we're doing alongside our sister church in Austin, Mosaic Church. Now, for the next month or so, we're going to cover about one chapter in Romans per week, and then we're going to spend a month in the chapter of Romans 8, just a a month. And if you know Romans 8, that's a really fast preaching through Romans 8. But today we're in Romans 5, and I'm going to ask you to honor our tradition in standing to your feet to honor the reading of the Word of God. Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, One would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Much more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The word of the Lord. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Jesus, please add a blessing to the reading of your word. Lord, we thank you for days like Father's Day. There's unique power on days like today. 
Some of us are rejoicing for how we've seen through our earthly father the reflection of your heart as our heavenly father. Others of us are grieving that we've seen this in our fathers on earth and yet lost them. And others still are grieving that we have not seen this in our fathers or even seen our fathers. But we all feel the power of Father because you are Father. You're a good Father. You're our Heavenly Father. And we're wired to see the power and feel the power of you as Father and to feel it here on earth. We're not just advanced animals. We're beings, precious beings beings made in your image. So help us. We're made in the image of you, God. You've, you've always been Father and Son and Holy Spirit in one. And help us to be right and, and rectified in that mystery. Heal us and prepare us to embrace the mystery of standing before you, confident as restored children of a good heavenly father. Nothing more in Jesus' name and nothing less. We trust that the power of your word can produce that very thing in us today. Amen. If you're taking notes, I know a lot of our elementary school age kids are. The title of my message is it is finished, but it isn't over. It is finished, but it isn't over. Now, as I preach our text today, I have two main points, the first of which is, number one, it is finished. Now, if you see context clues, you might be able to guess what the second point is, but I'm not going to say it. I'm just going to leave you in suspense. Point one is, it is finished. These are the famous last words of Jesus as he died on the cross. He he pulled himself up on that Roman cross with all the agony just to pull himself up to breathe in so that he could breathe out these words. It is finished. It means it's complete. It's final. The bridge construction is over. And if you live near a bridge being constructive, you can say, Amen. The bridge constructed, construction of, of the, the gap, the infinite gap that was between the perfect and heavenly Holy Father and fallen man, the perfectly engineered bridge, the immovable bridge is complete. It's open. This bridge, his name is Jesus That's what Paul is saying here and reiterating and underlining. In these first two verses, listen to the breathtaking finality in his tone with these three conclusive statements. Verse 1, we have been justified. We have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, we have obtained Access by faith into this grace in which we stand. 
twice in the first few verses, it's by faith. The finality of which he speaks is something that God has done. We don't participate in the complete work of the gospel in as much as we receive the complete work of the gospel by faith alone. The grace of God has made it perfect and complete, and we are just to see it and savor it and drink it by faith. It's complete. Now, the first conclusive statement here I'm going to go through again. It's, we have been justified. Justified. Justified means to be rendered just. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are just by faith. (laughs) Now, it's like we talked about last week. We unjust, unrighteous ones are rendered righteous by the righteous one, the spotless one, Jesus. His righteousness is attributed to, imputed upon, assigned to us. And before any of that, we are first made a blank canvas for the work of justification. He first removes our spots and wrinkles and sinfulness all of our abuse in which we've participated in the system of human sin and history that we've all been a part of and stained by and contributing to the abuse and destruction and murder and deception that perpetuates it. All of that is canceled by the blood of Christ that Paul brings back up, justified by his blood, washed so that we can be a clean slate upon which to bring his justification. By substitution, he cancels it. He takes the wrath of God that we talked about in Romans 1, this wrath that we bring upon ourselves, the system of human sin that just kind of makes the world worse and God just kind of allowing us to do us. Hashtag you do you and it destroying ourselves, that wrath Jesus takes upon himself and all the consequences of which and then puts upon us his righteousness, justification. I heard one person say justification is like this. Justification means that it's just as if I'd never sinned. I'm perfectly right with God. This is such an overwhelming and over-the-top beauty that we're seeing here. And we're we're just in the first few words of chapter 5, and it goes on. Not only do we have justification, we have peace with God. Not to be confused with all the iterations of false peace, worldly peace, like the, the, the absence of political conflict peace, or the the... The peace sign peace, which is more of like a smoky chemical peace. No, we have real peace. We have the, the presence of the peaceful one. The, this word peace that is used here, we have peace with God, is eirene. It's a Greek word that means the presence of the Messiah's tranquility. The overwhelming peace that vanquishes all the enmity and anxiety that would try to compete with our state of joy. We have this peace. We don't just have some of this peace. We have all of it. 
Would you help me for a second? Would you close your eyes? I want you to think back to a time in your life where you felt this peace. Holy Spirit, help us to think when that was. When did, when did I feel peace? What was I seeing? What was I smelling and hearing? Help us to see that. Maybe it's a time that you consider now to be naive. But what if, what if that time is, is not naive? What if it's more of the truer self that God is preparing for you as his peace takes dominion, dominion in your life? What if that is the more mature you that the Father is restoring? You can open your eyes now. Most of us, when we think about peace, we don't think necessarily about times where there was external circumstances like flowing rivers and mountains in our life as much as we think about times where we had peace relationally with the most important people in our lives. When we think about times of anxiety, the absence of peace, it's often times when the important relationships in our life, there's strain on. God wired us for relationship, first and foremost, with himself. And Paul's saying here, we have peace with God. We have it. We have all of it. It cannot be taken away. It's not the type of peace that's temperamental and comes and goes like a roller coaster. This week was a trying week on the peace in my home. My wife got really sick on Tuesday or Wednesday, and Wednesday was just this this really terrible moment of suffering where I was helping her going in and out of the ER, and, and uh, she, she eventually got better th- this week, and she's recovering uh, from some weird stomach bug that she had. But in the middle of all that, I felt the lack of peace, trying to, to, to balance helping my wife get better and, and keeping my kids from hurting themselves and, and one another and trying to, to, to get caught up with work. And I remember on Wednesday night, my oldest daughter, she's 10, her name's Hadassah, she comes and talks to me about how she sees the strain on me and she's going to help mommy and help me. And I felt an overwhelming sense of peace that night. That was Wednesday night. Thursday morning comes and my daughter wakes up and starts acting her age. And she kind of emotionally retracts her promises, right? So like any loving father wouldn't treat their kids, I gave her the silent treatment for a while. Just mad at her. Like, oh, you remember that piece we had? I take it back. <laughs> it lasted all of five minutes, but if you all know me, the silent treatment, any sort of silence for me is alarming. Yeah, right? <laughs> it's just not how I was wired. Listen, the heavenly father never does that passive-aggressive thing. When he gives you his peace, he doesn't say, yeah, we, we're good, but don't forget what you did to me. He gives you none of that. It's completely absolved. There's no intuition of bringing up past sin. His peace is perfect. It's blood-bought. 
He pays for it himself. We have peace with God. Justification, peace with God. And we have also obtained access to the grace in which we stand. This access, this word access is great. It means approaching God as acceptable. Acceptable. Having access that's completely acceptable. I think it was like five years ago that I went to a funeral of a, of a close, close friend of mine in Houston. His name's Bill. And as I drove there, I, I, had, I was dressed kind of like I am now, no tie, no suit jacket. And I get out of the car, and I, as I'm approaching the funeral place, the place that they had the funeral of the church, everyone at there, all the men, had a jacket and a tie. I really love Bill, and I knew this was supposed to be a time where we were focused on Bill and not focused on the absence of my tie. But let me just tell you, it was really hard. It was really hard everywhere I went. I felt like I was dishonoring him. I didn't feel acceptable. It was hard for me to approach the place of mourning because I didn't feel dressed right. And I know that maybe you've never been insecure about how you're dressed. But this is, with, this is me. Maybe you can't relate to this. I'm being facetious. Most of us can let me tell you, there is never this feeling with the Heavenly Father. We approach him as already acceptable. Jesus takes our filthy garments of sin, and he gives us grace garments that we wear that can never be taken or stripped from us. Garments of royalty, This grace in which we stand, we're clothed by it. In other words, we don't just have a clean slate from past sin. We have a real and irrevocable power for present and future obedience to God. When we approach God, we have grace. That's what grace is. My favorite probably verse about grace is Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. It doesn't just say offering the chance at salvation. Grace bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. I think when Paul wrote that, the Holy Spirit understood what this present age would look like. And he's not saying that grace prepares you to give it, have a chance to try harder to be a good guy, a good Christian. No, grace has appeared. We have it. It trains us when we can't train ourselves. We have the domination of his love and peace and grace. And check out some of the other things that grace entails in the Bible. This power to live differently that distinguishes our faith and our grace from any other story or narrative. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. If if you were ever to think that grace from God is some just uh, detached feeling or principle, no, God gives us himself. We have the presence and the power of God himself, the Holy Spirit. And we have his gifts. We have his Holy Spirit outpouring so that we can prophesy. We can lay hands on sick people and see supernatural power come. We have the, the, the power to wait on God when we don't see what we think we need to see. It's the power of God. 
We have the power to speak in the tongues of men and of angels and powerfully and with anointing and authority declare the love of Jesus Christ in a way that totally extinguishes any other competing message. We also have the church, which is a part of grace. Amen? We have sanctified interdependence. One of the reasons we talk about growth groups, we talk about Wednesday nights in the summer, is because we need to come together to confess our sin and to receive encouragement from one another. It's this ancient thing called the power of the church. One of the reasons why I go to multiple groups throughout the week usually is because I need extra grace, and I get it. God's given us the power. We have interdependence. Your strength is my strength. My strength is your strength. Our weakness can be confessed and exchanged for his strength. And it's just all in all a powerful, grace-filled, world-dominating thing. Praise God. We have grace. So just in a few verses, we got justification, peace, full access, access to the grace in which we stand, It's not that this is coming. It's that we've already obtained it. It's ours. Blessing and right standing. It's ours. It is finished. In the same vein, I want to fast forward to the last verse of our passage because Paul basically reiterates the same conclusive reality. Verse 11, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom We have now received reconciliation. Reconciliation here means atonement or relational favor. means to be at peace with God, similar to how verse 1 says. We have it. How appropriate and providential is it that on Father's Day, the Holy Spirit would lead us to a text that seems to reiterate that you're okay. All that needed to take place for you to be restored as a full-fledged child of God has been performed by the divine Son. It seems like Paul discerns from the Holy Spirit a need, if you go through the repetition of this text, the, the need to reiterate, hey, you're good. You're fully reconciled. You're no longer an enemy of God. You're a son and a daughter. You're no longer rebellious. You're restored. You're no longer under wrath. You're under grace. The dominion of grace is a dominion that will crush the dominion of wrath. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. So why did God feel the need to repeat all this as it relates to what I discern to be the struggles of modern life? I've been praying about this this week. I've been praying, God, give me wisdom and insight on your scripture. Give me wisdom and insight for the people that you've called me to preach to. As I've been praying for you this week, this is how I feel the Holy Spirit is what he's shown me. And that is that we need to understand the importance of the doctrine of assurance. Everyone say assurance. Thank you. I I need your help in preaching. This is a talk back church. Assurance. We, We believe in this church that 
the Holy Spirit can give us full assurance of why we've been made fully right with God. You say, Pastor Peter, why, why do we need to know that? Well, thank you for asking. The devil knows that if he can get us to doubt, to use our mental space to doubt whether or not we truly belong to God, then we'll be rendered relatively useless in drawing others into relationship with God the Father. There's nothing wrong with using our energy to try to please God the Father. But the problem is thinking that our efforts to please him can fundamentally bring new favor or improve upon our status as children. Here's the problem with that. You can't improve upon perfect. Jesus perfectly reconciled us to the Father. We don't improve upon it. We receive it by faith. And if your faith leaks through life's circumstances, you add faith to faith. As Thaddeus said earlier, we don't graduate from the gospel. We reaffirm the gospel over and against every devil in hell and principality that would try to get us to think about something else. The Father's love is so great that he's already produced favorable status from us. And remember the context. He produces favorable status from infinitely unfavorable status. That's the kind of love we're talking about here. Think about human love, you know, the birds and the bees, right? Human love has the power to procreate new life. This is the mystery of conception that we do well to honor. No matter what devil in hell continues to try to deceive humanity about. Human love, based on God's design, has the power to procreate. But listen, the love of God is infinitely superior to that because he doesn't just procreate. He recreates, not, for, not out of nothing, like procreation, but he recreates out of enmity. We are made from enemies to children of God. This should cause us to wonder. Again, help me again. Say wonder. We all have limited brain cells. So point to your neighbor and kind of give them the, I'm just kidding. No, all of us, all of us have limited brain cells. And we need to use our limited mental resources to wonder upon the glory of what God has already done. We don't have enough mind space to, to think about much else relatively other than just to wonder at the mystery of all that he's done for us. Instead of the wrong kind of wonder that can enter our minds if we don't fill our minds with God's goodness. You know, the, the wondering whether or not we'll ever measure up. No, we do because he first loved us and that should cause us to wonder. Listen, if God has done all that is necessary to make us acceptable before him, then any effort to try to make ourselves acceptable for him is just unbelief. He's made us acceptable. Again, there's nothing wrong with pursuing more righteousness. The problem is thinking that that pursuit can make us 
more acceptable. We're already acceptable because of what he's done. We bring joy to him. But our bringing joy to him isn't a performance that can somehow improve upon our value. We're valuable because he says we are. It is finished. Just in case we're still tempted to find our value, though, in our performance. Like trying to improve upon our own strength or godliness as a means of saying, well, I've got this. I've got this checked off. I'm, I'm doing good with that. Well, in the middle of our passage, Paul underlines our weakness and godlessness. Verse 6, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I've been thinking about this this week. Why does it, it goes on a few verses later to, to kind of remind us, remember how he, we're sinners and he died for us anyway? Why does God want to just reiterate this one so much? Like, is he wanting us to just feel bad about ourselves? Like, you know, you're, you're really a bad person. Don't forget about that. Just to kind of rub our face in the mud to make us feel lesser. Is that what's happening here? I don't think so. God doesn't have a superiority complex. He is superior. He wants to pull us up through invitation to remind us, hey, nothing you can do can make yourself better because you were already the worst. And I did everything for you. Everything. And I would do it again. He wants to remind us that he's done everything for people who not just did nothing, but we've done everything against him. When I was growing up, there was this, uh, there was this famous song by Brian Adams, uh, came in Prince of Thieves, the Robin Hood. Everything I do, I do it for you. The, the climax of the, the chorus, remember? Yeah, I die for you. Remember that song? Well, listen, this is kind of cute when you're talking about dying for your true love. But what kind of songs are to be written for someone who dies for his enemies? I mean, this is the kind of songs for which eternal offerings of new songs is required, which read the book of Revelation. That's what's happening. We worship the one who died for his enemies. He died for us. He didn't almost die for us. He didn't die for us to, to give us halfway there. He fully paid the price to make us sons. And again, if we understand the magnificent, awe-inspiring, wonderful love of God, that he's made us perfectly acceptable all on his own, we're not going to use our energy to try to make ourselves acceptable, but to love the God who already did, to love him back, to love as secure children that overflow with security and love and not striving to be something that we already are. We'll grow as children and proclaim the love of our Heavenly Father. We'll live and we will die boldly 
We use our thoughts and our words and our hours and our dollars to tell the world of his love. Even when we're being persecuted and hated and tortured, we're assured. And not just self-assured, but gospel-assured. We're free to be dangerous and disruptive in our witness of the gospel. That's what assurance does. We're no longer neutered to just be weak, but to be strong in our weakness. This is the assurance that led the great missionary and pilot, Jim Elliott, to the equatorial jungle to deliver the gospel to a people known for their murderous violence against outsiders. Right before he left, he said this. He says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He gives what he cannot keep, namely his earthly life, which is ticking. There comes a day where we'll all be judged. It's just a brief moment of of vapor on earth. He says, he is no fool who gives that, can't keep it, to gain what he cannot lose. Eternal life and even the the expansion of that same life in Christ into the lives of others. We see from his story that he landed and he lost his earthly life within hours, stabbed through with a spear through the heart, and he died. But he gained what he cannot lose. Not only does he personally have personal salvation, which, hey, that's important to acknowledge but not obsess over as if it was the only thing, right? He has peace before God, justification, grace, but he also functionally extended it to a people. The end of this story is still being written, but his wife, Elizabeth, after her husband was murdered by these people, what did she do? She went and went herself to these people. Hundreds and even thousands of these people became Christians, because in any season of time, the enmity of the evil one, when brought into the cage with the love of God, will always be destroyed. And we as children can just be dangerous like that. If we're fully assured that we've gained that which we don't deserve, we'll be sure that we can't lose it. Because we never earned it. Listen, if the devil is trying to accuse you and weaken your resolve with accusations and lies about that which you're not, you can know full well, I don't deserve the gospel and that's what makes it more glorious. You cannot disqualify yourself from something that you never qualified yourself for in the first place. That's the beauty of the scandal of this doctrine of assurance. When we trust God like this in faith, it makes us more dangerous. It is finished. But number two, it's, it's not over. Jesus paid it all, and yet there's more to be experienced. This is a paradox. Jesus gave all of himself to me, but there's more for me. I have all of Jesus, but there's more Jesus. 
There's more Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can simultaneously fully satisfy and yet give us greater hunger for him. That defies logic. I'm aware of this. But that's Jesus. It is finished, but it's not over. Asa, it's not over. Verse 2. We rejoice in hope for the glory of God. This hope is talking not simply about hope that maybe someday we'll see the glory of God. No, we who see the glory of God, we see it. We experience it. It's transformed our lives. This is saying that we will be glorified contextually. We will be like Jesus. Listen, there's coming a day when the matchless beauty of grace that you've already tasted will turn into an endless feast. An endless feast. Here's why this sort of hope is transformative. It's more real and not less real. Sometimes we think that, that grace and this hope is kind of like, okay, my, my real life, my real aspirations here on earth, you know, my, I aspire to have this sort of marriage, this sort of job, this sort of life. If none of that works out, well, then at least I got hope in Jesus in my back pocket. No, 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 no. Your circumstances and life goals are of lesser importance than that which is already sure that we will be glorified with Jesus. And all the things that we experience are comparatively insignificant, but also can be redeemed with this confidence. Jesus is in a place right now, this very moment. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father, watching you, delighting in how his Holy Spirit is present here with us right now, loving you. And where he is right now is more real than this temporary existence. In fact, Jesus, we have five sentences, I think. We have five sentences. He has more. He has senses that we, we can't even understand or grasp, grasp with our understanding. And we get those. I don't even understand what I just said, but I, I trust it. <laughs> Jesus is more real than we are. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Listen. Don't miss the context. We don't just implicitly delight in suffering. We don't just implicitly, like suffering is, an, is a good in and of itself. Suffering, we are not masochists. We are not ascetics. Christians can see the suffering and see how the suffering brings us in trajectory to the same Jesus who suffered, died, was buried, and was resurrected and ascended. So if we can see our suffering that relates to Jesus, we can pin ourselves on the map of what his life is like and the very suffering, maybe even that the devil would try to use against us or our own sin or earthly circumstances that would bring upon us, that suffering can remind us of Jesus' trajectory. And so even our suffering brings us hope when we add faith to it. This is the same Jesus who suffered and who rose, but he 
He promised to come back to us and bring us to himself. Verse 5, our hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he's given to us. This word poured out means to, to overflow and run over, it's much like the blood of Jesus ran over for us. That we remember every week when we go to the communion table, he, he poured his love into us. His blood was shed and we remember it and we dominate our own souls and bodies and flesh reminding ourselves that that promise is greater than any other competing sentiment. Greater is he that is in you, Paul says, than he who is in the world. And we, by faith, come into agreement with that reality day after day and week after week. It's an adventure of growing in Jesus. There is more of him. It's finished all the work to bring us into relationship with him, but it's not over. There's more growing in him. Now, as I draw to a close, look to verse 10 again. Verse 10 says, While we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, will we be saved by his life? This word saved is, is a Greek word that means like the whole spectrum of salvation, not just justified, not just sanctified, but also glorified and rewarded. We're getting it all. And we can have this brazen confidence because this same Jesus who rose from the dead is bringing all of this back to us. And if the hopeless state of a perfect Savior being murdered by Romans turned into the most hope-filled place in the resurrection— then no matter where we are in life circumstances, we can come before God and align our faith now with that, with full assurance. Right now, the tomb that Jesus was once laid in on a Friday afternoon, that tomb is empty. And right now, the Holy Spirit is coming to empty people of anxieties and fears and worries so that he can fill us with the resurrection life of Jesus and hope. As we gather there every week, we, we grow in the riches of what we already possess. And as we go to the table, we, we dispossess any other competing thing, and we celebrate and taste and smell and remember with our being what Jesus has done. And when we scatter from here, we spread that. We take risks full of hope. Would you pray with me?